I have four charges filed against me. Misdemeanor trespass, criminal burglary, sabotage, and assemblage of saboteurs. The last three are felonies and carry up to 10 years prison time. Just knowing that, that Ken's whole shtick was about civil disobedience, right. it was clear that I was gonna be filming him breaking the law. So I wanted to be clear for myself what kind of jeopardy that may or may not put me in. Filming someone else is not against the law. Eating and abetting someone committing a crime is against the law. You can know that a crime is gonna happen and that doesn't mean that you are eating and abetting just because you know it's gonna happen. As long as you're not participating in the planning or the execution of it, there's no crime being committed. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 26, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Today's podcast marks our monthly doc industry guest segment of the show. Today is a show that is incredibly appropriate for this time in our lives as journalists and as documentary filmmakers, especially here in the United States, of all places, where the freedom of the press has been under increasing attack by both legislative and judiciary parties. You'll recall last October of 2016, a number of journalists and documentary filmmakers being arrested during the North Dakota Access Pipeline events. Journalists, including Amy Goodman of D Democracy Now!, were being arrested on site with little or seemingly no just cause, and many times having their film or audio recordings seized from their person. You might also remember me talking about this very thing during the opening segment, I believe it was episode number 14, where I was detailing some recent correspondence with Portland, Oregonian doc filmmaker Lindsey Grazel, who had recently been arrested and brought up on some very serious charges, not the least of which were a felony criminal sabotage charge, as well as a felony burglary charge. She, along with a fellow colleague of mine, Carl Davis, had been arrested while filming climate activist Ken Ward, the main subject of her upcoming documentary, while he was attempting to shut down the Trans Mountain Pipeline that runs from Canada to the U.S. At the time, Lindsay was unable to speak with me about her impending court case, but was hopeful to be on the show to share her story with other doc filmmakers once things had settled down a bit. Another well-known documentary filmmaker, Dea Schlossberg, had also been arrested on the same day while filming the protests that occurred during the events of North Dakota Access Pipeline. Schlossberg spent 53 hours in jail for essentially filming the protest and faced charges that could have sent her to prison for 45 years. Edward Snowden, the infamous secrets leaker accused of espionage, at the time tweeted about Schlossberg, this reporter is being prosecuted for covering the North Dakota oil protests. For reference, I face a mere 30 years. Since the arrests, Schlossberg, an award-winning documentary filmmaker in her own right, has recently joined forces to help produce on Grazel's upcoming documentary. 
So to say that I am beyond happy to have both of them joining me for today's episode would be a vast understatement. Lindsay and Dea, welcome to The Documentary Life. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Chris. Of course. Lindsay, this has been almost a half year in the making, I believe, at this point. I am so happy to finally have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad <laughs> to be here. Awesome. And I, and I guess, Lindsay, we can, we can start with you. While I don't know you personally and have never actually worked with you, of course, we have at least a couple of colleagues and one very good friend in common. I've worked with Carl Davis, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, who was, of course, one of your main shooters on this current doc project. And a couple of times over the years, uh, and, and Brian Kimmel, who, who you've also worked with, is a dear friend of mine. In My fact, two favorite DPs. Your two favorite DPs. Okay, awesome. Good to hear. Good to hear. In fact, and I'm not sure if you realize this or not, Lindsay, he and I were working together on a shoot in Mexico when the arrests went down. I, I remember vividly him looking at his phone in the morning and, and turning to me and saying, so Chris, I have a story for you. You might even <laughs> consider, you might consider this, you know, maybe for the podcast uh, at some sure. point. Of course, this was the day when, when, when you, and, and it turns out day as well, were arrested. And, and, and you know, the rest is, is, is history, if you will. And it, it wasn't long after that, I started corresponding with you, Lindsay, and, and of course, at the time, you, you were unable to share any pertinent information because your case was pending. But the hope was that in the future, we'd be able to openly discuss this on the show. You know, so here we are, right? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted, before I forget, yep. your intro um, had, it, when Daya was arrested, she was actually also filming an activist from the Shut It Down uh, action. It was not part of the North Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah, a lot of the news stories got it wrong. They did. Okay, well, uh, that makes sense then. So okay. even if you did your research. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, that's where I'm drawing that from, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, be, you know, before we get to that day, why don't we just start with a little intro from the both of you. This will give us a little context of who you are as human beings, as well as how you came to be documentary filmmakers. And Lindsay, we may, may as well start with you. Go ahead and give us a, br you know, a brief intro of where you're from and how documentary filmmaking, you know, how it came to be for you. Mm. Well, um, I learned that I wanted to work in documentary film when I was in college. Uh, I didn't go to a school that had a film program, but I, we did have this program called a short term where you would take one class exclusively for a month hmm. and they were a wide variety of subjects and one of the classes being taught that year was documentary production so I took it and I fell in love with it and uh, from there got an internship at the local PBS station and ended up really getting my skills as an editor through TV news for a number of years uh, okay that's it we've heard that a few times on the show yeah um, and I had kids pretty young. So when my kids were born, I did a little bit of freelancing for TV stations, took some time off. And then when my youngest went back, uh, or started kindergarten, mm. I began to do some freelance work around town. And I was in Portland at that, at that point. Okay. You were in Portland. Yeah. So most of my work up until this project has actually been freelancing for other production companies doing documentary style work, documentary storytelling, but for nonprofit organizations or museums, particularly. Um, I've done a lot of work for the Dougie Center in town and uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Hmm. 
But this project is the first time that I've taken on uh, an independent, truly independent documentary of my own. And I'm thrilled to have the luxury to be able to do that at this point in my life. <laughs> Welcome to the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, the, the nonprofit and NGO um, sort of route and entrance into the documentary world, and certainly news as well, is um, seems to be a, 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 a blah, seems to be a pretty common thread in terms of how people often get into documentary filmmaking. How about you, Dea? Uh, how, how did it happen for you? Yeah, um, my path was a little roundabout. Um, I started out uh, doing environmental education and graphic design and illustration work, kind of in parallel careers. Um, And in my late 20s, realized there was a beautiful way to combine those things in documentary film. Mm. Um, So I went to school to um, get my master's in science and natural history filmmaking program out of Bozeman, Montana. And, um, you know, once once I kind of realized, oh, this is this is the exact thing I've been wanting to do my whole life and just didn't, didn't realize that it existed and was like a valid, um, career choice. Um, but it was, it was, I, I haven't had a second thought since. Um, and I've done mostly work in, um, the environmental and human rights spaces since I started, um, also starting like doing um, projects and work for for nonprofits and um, a lot of conservation organizations around Bozeman to to pay my way through grad school. Once I finished school, um, I did a few films of my own and then uh, teamed up with Josh Fox, who made the Gasland films. And we produced um, his latest film, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. Uh, which premiered at Sundance last year and it's been on HBO. And um, I was, I mean, that was an incredible project to be a part of. And I feel really fortunate to have had that experience. Maybe the the best thing to come out of this whole uh, arrest experience was teaming up with Lindsay and working on this latest film. Of course. And and, and we're definitely going to get to that in a bit because I kind of want to, I have uh, some questioning around that. Um, and it uh, it makes perfectly good sense looking at like if anyone has seen the the film that you're referencing the Josh the Josh Fox film it, it makes sense that uh, that that this is a project that you would certainly be drawn to yeah let's um let's let's go ahead and get right to October to October 11th this is the day that the both of you are arrested in your case Lindsay both you and your shooter Carl as well as your documentary subject Ken Ward you're all arrested. And, and take us to this day, if you could. Um, of course, we a number of my listeners have been well aware of it um, since I first started talking about it um, early November on the show. I'd love for, and we're going to do this with both you guys. Lindsay, mm-hmm. go ahead and set the stage. Tell us what happened. Well, um, I had been filming Ken since July of 2015. Um, so I had had a number of opportunities to film him um, doing direct actions, some with a lot of other people, some just by himself, but they were all, um, actions that were lower risk, shall we say. Mm. Um, so when he told me he was thinking about doing this, I of course wanted to, to film him with, um, doing it. It was a, a big step for him and his work and it would be extremely important for the film. So, 
I contacted Carl, who had worked with me um, on a couple of other shoots for this project, and he was game. So we made a plan, and um, we met Ken at the site that morning and just started started filming. Um, there was nothing too surprising. We knew what his plan was when right. we went into it. So um, we were prepared, and we didn't really communicate with him. We were just filming and uh, following him until he got to the fence that he he actually cut a chain to enter a fenced area, and we made a very conscious decision to not go through that fence and stay mm -hmm. the, on the outside of it to to film him doing the action, which was you know, film from a film perspective, it was a little bit of a bummer because we were really far away of course, and, right. and through a fence. But um, that was the way that I felt comfortable doing it. Um, so we were waiting and waiting for the police to show up. And when they <laughs> did, of course, we filmed that interaction and we're hoping to film him actually get arrested and put in the police car. Right. Because Ken's, um, of course, was waiting for them. He was not running away. He was doing this as a act of conscience. I'm anxious. I've never been arrested before. Um, I'm not used to being in conflict with law enforcement, and so I'm, I'm edgy. I'm anxious. So what's the problem with ExxonMobil? Uh, it turned out they knew for about 30 years what the impact of supporting uh, fossil fuels would be on climate change. Yeah. So you're more than welcome to protest off our property, and I mean, if you're willing to do that, then we don't have a problem. But if you know, if you're not, then yeah. the manager has now asked you to leave. Uh, I'm going to give you one final warning to go to the public sidewalk, um, or you're going to be arrested and taken to jail. Do you want to go okay. to the public sidewalk? No. Okay. All right. Send her arrested. People come over and say, hey, that was really inspirational. Or they say, well, that was really heroic. And I, all of us sort of struggle to figure out how, how do you respond to that. So my, so far, my response is, is either that or really fucking stupid. We're still trying to decide <laughs> where on the spectrum. I haven't experienced any, any regret. It doesn't mean that it's not fucking stupid, though. I mean, <laughs> it, they're not mutually exclusive. It may not change anything at all, in which case, uh, you know, it would be harder for me to make any personal political argument that it was a good idea, but I still don't have any regret. If anyone knows anything about Ken Ward, and certainly having seen what you have shown me of the film, that is precisely how you would expect him to act and to react to that situation. There's there's no uh, sort of confrontation in, in a defiant matter with, with the police. This is something, as you mentioned earlier, um, this is something that is, it, it's very thought out, it's very planned, and this is what he's doing. Right. And he's super polite to the police all the time, which right. is great. The police were there in the end. They started walking around the perimeter of the fence when they met Ken. And um, when the policeman saw me, he said to me that, you know, we have to leave or else we would be at risk for being arrested for trespassing. Right. 
And so I did leave. Uh, I told I went back and got Carl, and I said, we have to go. The police don't want us here. So we were headed back to our car and expecting that we were going to have to drive around and you know, hope to film the police car driving off with him. But instead, um, a different different policeman met us at Something our car. else happened instead. <laughs> yeah. And um, started, a, started a line of questioning that right. felt uh, quite uncomfortable to me. And my, immediately my training kicked in and I said, am I being detained? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, yes, you are. Mm. So I stopped answering questions at that point right. and uh, we were both arrested and brought to the Skagit County Jail. <clears throat> By the time we got to the jail, not only um, were we being charged with misdemeanor trespass, but they had added three felonies to the list. <laughs> the exact charges that Ken himself faced, which included burglary, criminal sabotage, and assemblage of saboteurs. Yes. Okay, now that is the, that's the stage that has been set for us um, in your case, Lindsay. Dea, what is happening in your part of the world at this point. Tell us tell us what's <laughs> happening with you in North Dakota. Okay, so at the same time, on the same day, mm-hmm. um, I found myself in Walhalla, North Dakota, which is, well, I wasn't actually in the town of Walhalla. I was outside of it. Um, Walhalla itself is a tiny town, um, about 10 miles from the Canadian border. And it's where the Keystone Pipeline goes through um, North Dakota, and there's actually a lot of confusion in a lot of in a lot of the news stories about um, my case um, because of the protests going on at Standing Rock at that time, and because of the arrest of Amy uh, Goodman and a lot of other journalists and okay. Shailene Woodley right around that time. Um, when I was arrested, I was kind of lumped in with them. Uh, of course, and, and um, absolutely, any as, of the research that I've come across has been just that. Yeah, journalists arrested in North Dakota for covering pipeline protests. And because everybody else was at Standing Rock, that's why um, my story was also lumped in there. But it was – the action was done in solidarity with the water protectors at Standing Rock, but we were actually at the Keystone Pipeline. So, um, uh, yeah, and very similar to Lindsay – you know, I, I did my homework. I knew what I needed to do to remain legal across the board. Um, I stayed on public property. I was there purely documenting. Mm. Uh, when Michael, the activist, went to the enclosure to, to turn the valve and shut it off, I stayed on the outside of the enclosure. Um, so I didn't trespass. Um, I didn't facilitate in any way. I was purely documenting essentially Um, very similar uh similar scenario as Lindsay in terms of where you were with the filming right exactly okay where you were with the camera that whole thing yep okay yeah totally uh like Lindsay the police came to arrest um, the activist Michael and then came over to me and and uh I had no indication that I was being detained or anything and they just said you're under arrest um, as an accessory to a crime. Um, and I, I told them my media, I was on public property. These, I, was in my, I was within my rights, my First Amendment rights. And, and they said, no, you're an accessory. And you have to come to the police station. And um, yeah, then long story short, after 53 hours in jail, um, <laughs> Uh, I was handed three charges, three conspiracy charges, 
theft of property, yeah. theft of services, and tampering with or damaging a public utility. Well, let's not make that that story so short. What uh, for for my <laughs> listeners, I, I yeah. what what's happening in fifty three hours? What what are you experiencing during that time? Um, other than an amalgamation of all sorts of emotions, what's happening? What's happening to to someone like yourself, a filmmaker, in fifty three hours? Right. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty traumatic 53 hours, um, because North Dakota was in a state of emergency at that time, Mm. uh, they didn't have to adhere to strictly to like the 48 hours and, um, making sure I had, um, contact with a lawyer and, um, all the normal things were kind of out the window because of the state of emergency because of what was going on (laughs) in Standing Rock and they declared a state of emergency so that, um, law enforcement from other states could come in and, and help in quotes with the situation at Standing Rock. Um, so it was really hard for me to get any information. Um, I didn't know for the first 24 hours or so that I could even make phone calls. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, there, there was just no information. I was really very much in the dark um, except that they kept the lights on 24 hours a day in the oh, jail. Wow. <laughs> um, once my fiance did figure out on the outside that he could, he could buy me a calling card through the jail system and, um, get that information relayed to me yeah. through the guards. Then I started calling out and asking, asking him for phone numbers and talking to lawyers and, and everybody was asking me what's going on. Yeah, of and course. I had no idea. <laughs> right. You're really I was in the dark. cell by myself. So I did I didn't have any information. It was very, you know, it was scary. It was confusing. Yeah. Um and when Josh Fox got word that I was in jail, um, he was actually touring with our film in Europe. And he was really upset by this. So he um he he did a, a live stream and kind of made a a call for people to um you know speak out and say this is outrageous and and that spread around the internet and that ended up um getting a lot of media coverage and right um, right i mean in your situation it seemed to get a little bit more of the press headlines you know celebrities started speaking out about yours and other yeah. other the journalists arrest Neil Young, Mark Ruffalo, Daryl Hannah, Francis Fisher. You know, they were all people yeah. who spoke out about the, the, the wrongful imprisonment of journalists such as you, as yourself. Yeah. What's that like? <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty surreal. Um, yeah. I mean they're all they're all wonderful people who use their like celebrity for good cause and are really in it for the right reasons and have been um, at a lot of climate events uh, with us through the film and through like the climate revolution and a lot of the Bernie stuff. And um, well, and, and how does this, year. how does this instill, and you guys can both answer this. How does this, or does it not instill confidence that, that, you know, the case is going to go away that, 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 that they will find that this has been wrongful imprisonment having celebrities like this involved and, and getting and getting it out into the media in this sort of fashion. I don't think, Maybe, I don't think we'll yeah, ever go ahead, know. Please, Lindsay. I don't think we'll ever know exactly how much influence, um, the outcry had, um, mm-hmm. the prosecutor's decisions to not pursue the charges, but right. it certainly can't hurt, um, 
there was a Guardian article that came out that got read and shared widely, and they were calling the Skagit County Courthouse to ask for comments. Um, So Mm -hmm. when you have that kind of pressure, I think um, it it, it makes them think twice about like, are we doing the right thing or do we really have evidence here? And um, it took about a month before my charges were dropped. So it was not a, it was not an instantaneous decision by any, by any means. That what you just said right there, Lindsay speaks to the importance of having a freedom of of the press in a democratic society without that sort of um, ability to have that sort of interaction and in a safe manner without someone say like the guardian calling uh, Skagit County and, and finding out information, getting that information out into the world, things can remain silent. I mean, and this this doesn't have to be a super political discussion, right? But this is what we're up against as journalists, as doc filmmakers nowadays, in particular with the current administration that we have here in the U.S. Um, this is what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. This this should not be a political discussion. This should be a, a basic human right. Um, and it's it. I find it appalling that it has entered the political conversation. Right. Before Trump was ever elected, we might add, this is all under the Obama that administration, is true. and these that were local decisions by local sheriffs in the state of Washington and North Dakota. Absolutely. I think that's important to note. And but I do feel the, like we're uh, in danger of that getting much worse. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> uh, and it was in the, the action did occur in two other states as well on three other pipelines in Minnesota and um, Montana. And those journalists are also um, were also facing charges. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy today, and we'll see you there. What? Let me ask the both of you, how, when, and, and do you decide as documentary filmmakers this is worth worth risking imprisonment. Okay, this is worth risking my life. Um, what is that thought process like? And we'll start, we'll go back to you, Lindsay, how that worked for you. Because of course, you're also, you have to not only, you're not only including yourself in these decisions, you have a crew member or two that you also have to think about. Right. 
Um, well, before I even embarked on this project, I did meet with a lawyer, um, just knowing that that Ken's whole shtick was about civil disobedience. Right. It was clear that I was going to be filming him breaking the law. So I wanted to be clear for myself, um, you know, what kind of jeopardy that may or may not put me in. And so I met with a lawyer way back in 2015 <clears throat> and got clarity that, um, you know, f obviously filming someone else is not against the law. Um, <laughs> aiding and abetting someone committing a crime is against the law. So, um, but you can know that a crime is going to ha happen and, um, that doesn't mean that you are aiding and betting just because you know it's going to happen. Uh, as long as you're not participating in the planning or the execution of it, there's no crime being committed on my part. So I knew that going in to the whole project. And then um, before filming this pipeline action, I consulted with the lawyer again because um, it, it was a riskier situation by the mere fact that, you know, it wasn't a large group of people getting together. It was one person. Um, so, um, the, I knew there was some risk that the police would interpret me being there as me being an accomplice. Right, right. Um, and so the, the discussion with the lawyers were really about how to minimize that risk and make sure that I wasn't crossing any of those lines. And, okay and make it obvious to the police that I wasn't crossing those lines so that I wouldn't get arrested in the first place. Um, but if I was arrested, then I would be in the position of having to defend myself. So there was a risk calculation there, and um, I was told that the risk was fairly low that I would be charged with anything. And <laughs> I decided it was worth taking that risk, and unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> So I was in the position of defending myself. Well, so there's there's calculated risks here we're, we're dealing with, right? But at the same time, you've done your research, um, and this mm -hmm. is the both of you. You you guys have done your mm -hmm. due diligence, and in both of your cases, you're still arrested. And you know, Dea, you sound like you may have been even a little bit more surprised about being arrested. So I guess. Even though you've done your due diligence, you've done your research, you, you've gone through in your head countless times, and during the day, you've done everything in the way that it should be done according to the, the manner of the law, and yet, nonetheless, you both found yourselves arrested. What are the lessons here? You know, what are the lessons for, you know, our brothers and sisters who are journalists and fellow documentary filmmakers, um, the people that listen to this show? What's going to be helpful for them as they move forward? What should they be doing for themselves? Because it's easy enough to say, do your, do your research, um, right. abide by the law. But at the end of the day, um, it, you guys were both still arrested. So what does this mean for us? Mm -hmm. What can we do? What are the lessons here? That's, that's tough. Um, I mean, I don't, in terms of not getting arrested, yeah, I don't, right. I don't think, um, I mean, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have done it differently. Right. I, given a second chance, I mean, I didn't break any laws the first time. I, I won't, wouldn't break laws in covering the same thing again. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't not cover it. Um, I, I think it's all the more important that journalists and filmmakers make sure to cover these 
these kind of things. Right. Make sure to cover people um, <clears throat> who are are challenging authorities who are infringing upon human rights. Um, yeah. I, I do think, well, I do think, I do think that there are some common sense things that you can do before you um, embark on a, on a risky activity. And yeah. um, I didn't find this document until my friend Courtney Herman pointed it out to me after I was arrested, but <laughs> there is a document called, uh, let's see, I have it on my desktop. It's something like dangerous, dangerous docs or uh, <laughs> speaking truth to power. Anyway, um, it's dangerous a, it's docs a, speaking truth to power. Yeah, let me, remind me, and I'll look it up afterwards. I, I will, and, I will, and I'll have that. What I'll do is I'll put that up on the show notes um, um, at the website. Yeah, it's it's worth a read. Okay. Um, it, and I think having things lined up ahead of time in terms of having a public presence for your project if at all possible. I was very happy that um, I already had a page on my website up about the project I was doing at the time that I was arrested. I had right, already, actually right. already shown clips at Doc Camp to people. Um, I had certainly been seen at a lot of different protests around um, the area with my camera filming for the past year. So um, it was obvious that, yes, indeed, I was making a film. It was obvious also that, yes, indeed, I am a filmmaker because I have 20 years of experience and a resume that was also online. Right. And that was actually a crucial thing when I went up for my arraignment. Um, the prosecutor was trying to make arguments to the judge that I shouldn't be allowed to leave the state of Washington. And my lawyers <laughs> um, made sure that my resume was in front of the judge. Um, then the prosecutors were, you know, insinuating that I wasn't a, a, a real media maker, that I was just ah, part of this the classic, of course, of and course. So the judge is looking at my resume in front of him. He says, oh, she looks like she's real to me. She's been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it, it's degrees of danger. And if, if you're a first time filmmaker without any history and without a website and without any presence, it's more dangerous than if you're established and you have some kind of um, presence about well, that's your project. A, that's a great doing. point, Lindsay. That's a great point because if maybe if you don't have that uh, that that resume and it doesn't get get in front of the judge in that fashion, it you, you you can be looked at in a different sort of light because it can be easy for someone to paint you as we know in the legal system system a certain way. And if the prosecutor is saying, "Hey, look, this is just you know." This is just some crazy person with a camera. They're just getting in the way, or they're clearly like a part of this process. This is what they're doing. Then it becomes you make it less easy to be painted in a certain light if you have obviously some background that you can and some clout that you can put in front of a judge. I guess. Right. the The other concrete piece of information that I would um, recommend is having a lawyer set up ahead of time. Mm. Uh, I had consulted with lawyers in Oregon, but because this action was in the state of Washington, that was no good to me. Okay. Um, I had to find a new lawyer in Washington. And that week before I had a lawyer was really stressful. <laughs> wow. So, I'll bet. I'll bet it was. How do we find these lawyers, Lindsay? I was very lucky. I found um, an amazing lawyer who worked for me pro bono, and it was really friends and family putting the word out. And I lucked right. into him. And when I talked to him, I knew he was the right person. And he took my case right away. I was very lucky. Okay. And how about you, Dan? Uh, I did want to add on to the last point. Um, 
and say, even though like being an established filmmaker uh, mitigates the risk you take in in filming something like this, um, it's it's certainly not only the right of journalists and media um, to cover these events. Um, I think what Standing Rock taught us was the importance of people on the ground mm -hmm. covering things and doing live broadcasts and so much of uh, the information that we got from there was just people live streaming with their phones. And because the media was not there, um, that's the only way people knew about what was happening. And um, and there was documentation of the human rights abuses going on, like the the hoses and below freezing temperatures, and right, right, of course. Uh, and 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 that is within their First Amendment rights as well. And I think we have to be careful about saying that um, you need to make sure that your you know journalists or credentials are are in place because that I don't want to discourage people, everyday people, from from documenting and being on public property and, and, you know, being fully within their legal rights. Well, and, and it's a tricky thing. I, I think it's, it's a great, it's a tricky thing, Dea, because I, I agree is. with you 100% and, 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 and I'm all about it, um, about what you're saying. I, I just think it's great on paper and it's great in theory, but well, in practice, yeah. it's a different if, situation. That doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for it that, that, because that's what we're here for. We need to be pressing that. Yeah. We need to be pushing that, which I think is a big part of your point. And yeah. And, and that, all that said, it is important for people to know that there is a risk yeah. there and there's a greater risk that they will be swept up in arrests and stuff. If, if they partake and they don't have the, um, the long resume, but, yeah. Yeah, but, but and if you know ahead of time, you can team up with someone who does have that experience, right? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, at least put a website up there that talks about what you're doing. Yeah, something. So yeah, know what you're getting into. I mean, the, the striking thing about my own institution is that the world is ending right now. Nobody has an idea what to do, and there's no debate about it. Mostly it's thought of in terms of failure of politicians, or the venality of the fossil fuel companies, or the you know, unfortunate stupidity of the public at large, or something else. It's never, well, maybe we're just fucking up, which is what we're doing. I think it's a, it's a good time to move on to talking specifically about the film. Um, Lindsay, how did the film Reluctant Radical, how did Reluctant Radical come to be for you? Well, I met Ken and um, he started talking about climate change as he does probably in most conversations that he has, <laughs> I imagine. Right. And um, I just found him to be a fascinating character, someone who spoke his mind um, was cl very clear about his convictions and said some, you know, rather controversial things. Sure. So um, to come out of a conversation like that, um, I was thinking about climate change differently. I was thinking about our environmental um, nonprofits in this country differently just from one conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm always kind of looking for interesting characters and documentary ideas. So I broached the idea of doing a documentary with him and he 
quite readily said, sure, I haven't tried that yet. Maybe that <laughs> will make a difference. <laughs> nice. That's, that's perfect, really. What what struck me was how much I appreciated, you know, Ken's earnestness and his, his down-to-earth and pretty real attitude. I say this because, you know, oftentimes when I watch an environmental activist, for example, on film, and I, I feel... I hesitate saying this, but they can be. There can be some pretty stereotypical pictures um, when we when we see someone like this on camera. They they they, yeah. they often seem to be over the top, outspoken. Often their approach can almost be a, uh, uh, agitation or yelling for people to listen to them. They might be, let's say, bearded and sandal wearing in appearance. <laughs> They're not super socially connected people. And I'm not trying to judge or be rude here. You, you, you know what I'm saying. But, but Ken, he doesn't come across this way at all. And he's well-spoken. He's thoughtful. He's not particularly aggressive. And he's also not passive aggressive. He, he's a well-connected he has a well-connected and respected past. He he just strikes me as a pretty solid, if not conflicted, character to be to be watching put his life in in freedom in peril. W- would you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, Ken is nothing if not um, he is totally sincere all the time, yeah. um, and earnest, as you said. And he's a smart guy, and that comes across. He had a 20-year history working inside of environmental organizations. And that's important as, to know, yeah. Yeah, in, in high-up positions. I, I mean, he was executive director of New Jersey PERG for 13 years. Right. And he worked as deputy director of Greenpeace USA, a national organization. And what he saw was that the the tactics that they were taking – for climate change were not going to have the effect that was needed, that they right. had to drastically rework their tools. And um, so he pushed for that internally for a long time and, and got no headway and eventually came to the realization that civil disobedience and direct action was the most effective political tool that he could use right. to address climate change. And so it's a, it's a very personal mission for him, but he's... Um, he's a great person to, to talk about the importance of it because precisely because he doesn't fit this stereotypical mold that you have in your mind of, you know, what an activist is or what an Thank activist you. looks like. Right. Right. I mean, I, I found Ken to say the least tragic, um, his character a bit tragic and heartbreaking. He visits, you know, he visits his therapist, right? Who, when Ken tries to explain to him what's happening for him, and how he sees how he sees his world and what's what he what he says what what is happening in the world right in a climate change sense and no one's listening to him you know the therapist basically tells him he's probably bipolar in essence not even his therapist is listening to him or certainly not taking his message very seriously not his colleagues not professionals not his friends and family the majority i mean this is a man who has spent an extraordinary amount of time working in activism and then researching specifically climate change. So it, it strikes me that it's not only heartbreaking seeing this guy and his thoughts, I guess, be diminished by by people around him, but that he just might be the exact type of individual who, you know, of course, along with many other people, could conceivably, and please forgive me for being a little dramatic here, but I don't know, save the damn planet? <laughs> You're the filmmaker. You're taking this all in. Did you at times 
feel this way? You know, what are you feeling while you're filming him? Well, that's, I mean, that's why I chose to follow him. And I, I'm, which is not to say that, you know, Ken Ward is the only person working on these issues. There <laughs> of are lots, lots of people working on these issues. Right. But I think the benefit of documentary film is bringing context to a situation. Yeah. Uh, Daya mentioned earlier, it's 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 not good enough to just know that an event happened. We have to know why it happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a long history that led Ken to the point where he turned off that valve to shut off the oil pipeline. Yeah, right. And <laughs> knowing that history and that context is key for people to really understand what's at stake here. Daya, how did you come to be a part of Lindsay, this project? How did this happen for you? I mean... We, you've mentioned earlier a little bit about it that, but but maybe you can expand upon that now. How you came to be a be a part of this project? Sure. Um, well, I met Lindsay very briefly um, when we were touring with How to Let Go in Portland. Okay. Um, and that's actually when I, when I met Ken as well. He came to the screening. Oh and, wow. Um, spoke at, at the um, our Q and A there. Makes sense. Um, yeah. So I was I was tuned in a little bit to to the story and the project. Um, but then after the action and after, you know, Lindsay and I were, were kind of dealing with, um, the same thing at the same time. Right. Um, had a few phone calls and (laughs) bound together metaphorically by the chains of injustice. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, it was really, you know, comforting to talk to each other and, um, and, we started talking about the project and I expressed interest in it. Lindsay sen- sent me some clips and um, I just thought it was fantastic. Um, I expressed interest in wanting to come on and, and help in some capacity. And um, so, yeah, we just went from there. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Two, two like-minded forces joining together, <laughs> uh, uh, working on something very important. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And I'm thrilled she's on board. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'll Thanks. bet you are. I'll bet you are. Direct action is to put yourself between the forces that are about to do harm. And to do that as a personal moral statement to affect change. You guys, you're right about at 100 right there. So that gives you an idea. And the official sources say that it's supposed to be leaving tonight at 4.15, but still out of water uh, in the dry dock. So there's no way that it's leaving at 4.15. Lindsay, were there times during the filming where you were concerned about your welfare? And I'm not talking about you know, fast forwarding to the events of, 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 you know, of course, the both of you being arrested in October. I'm referring to much earlier in the film where you're building up the story with Ken. We're seeing where where all of these things um, and his thoughts have come from. And you're out on, on the Willamette or the Columbia River at two in the morning on rowboats. And, you know, there's these massive ocean liners that are operating around you. Uh, and, and, and even, you know, you're obviously being seen by police and federal agents who are there on their own boats patrolling the area you know, being actually told by them, hey, so you know you're right at, you're right at about 100 feet from where you can't be. Like, there's an <laughs> obvious acknowledgement, right, of two very opposing forces in these moments. And, 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 and it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the larger protests that we have here in Portland where streets, you know, are lined with protesters as well as the police force. 
And they're both almost in direct opposition of one another, right? Though neither party is generally directly acting in opposition. But both of these parties are well aware that if one crosses the line, there's, there's going to be a problem here. It's, it's a very precarious position, right? What's that like for you at two in the morning out on the river, on the boats as a filmmaker? You know, what, what's, going through, what's going through your mind? You know, when you have the Coast Guard saying, oh, you're, you're at 100 yards right there, yeah. to me that's comforting because what, what I want to make sure as a filmmaker is that I'm not going beyond that 100 yards. So yeah. if I can know where that is, which is a little bit tricky in the water, mm. right? You don't have a, like a line or a <laughs> right. tree that you can gauge off of. Right. Um, that helps me. And so um, I – and they were always very professional and courteous, right. and we were too. So um, I actually did not experience fear in that way. Um, another thing that probably helps is that I'm a rower. And so I'm used to being out on the water oh, wow. sometimes. Okay. In the- awesome. So <laughs> there was no issue there either. So basically so, Carl or, or, or Carl. Brian or whoever is, is, is shooting with you at the time, they're comfortable at least in the, uh, the safety of the situation with you being the rower. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> they're like, we so have a professional were- <laughs> on board. We're going to be fine out in the river. That's awesome. Right. right. I don't know about that, but <laughs> By we were in a, yeah. In a little motorboat for one of those shoots and in a canoe for the other one. Okay, got it. Thank you. It was fairly stable. By far one of the most moving and impactful moments for me in the film, it's not even something Ken himself says or does. Instead, it comes from his significant other. He's been married once or twice before this, correct? Once. Okay, once before. This is from his current significant other, Laura. She says something so poignant and profound that for me, it sums up so many of kind of all of our feelings surrounding climate, climate change and, and the idea of activi- activism on this kind of level. And, and I'm going to play it here for our audience, and then, and then we'll come back and talk about it. If you're seeing something that everyone else is denying, that's not mental illness. It's, we're all using our defensive mechanisms to not suffer. If you let yourself think about it, it's, it makes you despair. So, and he doesn't hardly let himself not think about it. So that's hard. I can't, I can't do it. I can't live at that. I mean, that's part of the problem. That's what keeps me from acting is I can't stay in that what uh, my brain, the, in, the brain tells me from the data it has, the significance of what could happen to us as a species, this major extinction, worse than black plague kind of thing, it's hard to stay in that space. And if you do, it would make you pretty sad, you know, so. For me, that's one of the more powerful moments in the film. I, I, Great. I, I despair mm-hmm. for the planet thinking about about this stuff myself, more so when I see your see your film. But but also on a very minute and human level, despair for this soul for Ken Ward. I can only you know guess how utterly alone and sad he must feel, and knowing that in his heart of hearts, he's doing the right thing and most pure thing imaginable. And he sees and probably feels that not only his world and his kids' world, but everyone's world depends upon 
his ability to create monumental awareness, if not make or cause monumental change. Would you agree with that? I think that he has gone through periods of his life where he did feel extremely sad and mm. isolated. Mm. I would say that that is changing as mm. he is building a community of like-minded activists that he's working with. Um, and that's a huge part of this story is the despair, the psychological barriers that um, we have to facing something that is so scary. Mm. Um and how most of us are like Laura, myself included. We can't think about it for too long um, because it makes for kind of a crummy life if you think about it for too long. And I think that's a very natural human tendency, and it's one of the reasons that we're in this pickle that we're in. You know, you me you mentioned earlier when he went to his um, his therapist. You know, that was back in 2005 or something like that Okay. when – climate change was not talked about as often as it is now. And while it's still not talked in off as often as it needs to be, um, back then, uh, we, we hadn't seen the effects quite so dramatically. Like right now we're seeing the effects of climate change all around us all the time. Certainly scientists are reporting on it all the time. It's not a theoretical in a hundred years. And 10 years ago or 2005, when he was seeing this therapist, I don't think um, most people were that were as aware about climate change as they are now, which is not to say that people are very aware now either, unfortunately. Right, right. But, uh, uh, you know, the reaction of the therapist to say, oh, you, you think the world is ending and that you have an idea on how to save it. Mm -hmm. You must be crazy. Well, um, and in defense is, of a therapist – you think of a therapist's training and I put myself maybe in that, in the therapist position, that's kind of what, I mean, I, I get that. <laughs> I also right. get that in defense of the therapist, right? <laughs> I'm right. just more seeing, hearing that and seeing that on film. It's a heartbreaking thing to see. And, and if you're Ken Ward and, and of course this is me as the viewer projecting this perhaps on what I'm seeing, but I feel like as I'm watching the film, I'm thinking, man, if I'm Ken Ward, I must feel like, completely and utterly alone and unheard by anyone and completely not understood by anyone at this point if my therapist is is saying this about me yeah yeah it's not an easy path that he's chosen um we have talked about crowdfunding a number of times on this show uh, uh the majority of my listeners um, myself included have either done a couple or few uh campaigns um or, or will be doing them. So it's great to have a little conversation with, with you guys right now, I feel like, because you're in the middle of your campaign right now. How did you come to the decision that this was another way that you wanted to, um, to generate some funding for the film? And why is it necessary for you guys to be doing that right now? Well, up until now, this film has been um, like 98% personally funded by myself. Okay. And I've been able to keep costs low by often shooting myself. But um, we're at the point now where we need music. We need a post-production uh, sound mix. We need color correction. And we have another trial to film still, which right. means a trip back up to Washington and hotels and crew and oh, food. Oh, that'll be so, fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Return to the so, crime. <laughs> Return to the scene uh, of the crime. Right. Uh, I think, you know, the, the big thing is that, um, 
you know, this action that, that Ken undertook with four others on mm-hmm. October 11th, they were able to shut down all of the tar sands pipelines coming into the country right. that morning, which was the equivalent of 15% of the U.S. oil consumption for the day. That's incredible. And for five people to take that on and and be able to do that is just amazing. And yet almost no one has heard of this story. Right, right. So it's documentaries like this that are going to be able to bring this up for people and, and not just bring it up as a 10 second news bit, but bring it up as a, you know, in context, understanding why it's, it's so important. But well, of course, that along means- those lines, Dea and, and Lindsay, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, for, for Lindsay, for you and I being in Portland, Oregon, oftentimes talking about this sort of thing, we're talking, it's, it's, it's almost the idea of preaching to the choir. We have people that absolutely are on board um, with this sort of progressive thinking, right? And Dea, you are in a community in New York where you're surrounded with people like this. But how do we reach out as filmmakers when we're doing not only the film and trying to get the film itself out there, but when we're running running a crowdfunding campaign, whether it be Indiegogo or a Kickstarter or, or any of the numerous crowdfunding strategies that are out there, how do we get the word out to people and how do we get the importance out for a film like this to people that maybe aren't as easily accessible as they might be in Portland or or New York? The thing is, people who are in your choir um, also have their large networks of people right. um, that are not necessarily in that choir. Um, and I, I mean, I've been on both sides of crowdfunding projects plenty of times, um, having contributed to a lot of other documentaries um and run uh several of them in the past and what what's so great about crowdfunding isn't um the the necessarily the funding part um i mean that's great too but the the crowd part is um i mean seeing um all these names pop up as people that i mean as the filmmaker these these people that um, you see, believe in you and believe in this project right. um, means so much. And then from the other side, um, just feeling like you're a part of it, even if it's yeah. even if it's a buck or five bucks, um, you just feel like you're on the team and you're um, you're you're part of this thing that that has a life. And um, it's a really cool uh, feeling to be to be part of that community and and these are projects that like ones that i've that i've jumped on aren't aren't all or aren't even for the most part um climate and environmental films but just um projects that that are worthy and great stories and um so i think i think friends of friends is the um is the key to crowdfunding and, and and getting outside of that choir. And you make you, you make a great you make a great point there. And uh, if, as the documentary filmmakers and as the people that are trying to raise funds via a crowdfunding campaign, I think this is important for our listeners to keep in mind exactly what you're saying. And we did it um, certainly with our own project, Elvis of Cambodia, when we we spent a month essentially down in Long Beach, California, the biggest. Cambodian American population of refugees in the U.S., where you sort of you're not only there, of course, 
you want to raise, you want to hit your target, right? You want to raise the funds that you need via via your Kickstarter goal. But there's so much more to that. You're actually building this community by by going out and trying to raise funds and creating this buzz and creating awareness. You're building a community not only for potential people that will see the film later on, but it's it's like you said earlier that you're creating a community in a manner that that really is a support group for you and just makes you really want to go out that much more and do what you're doing and that's important right that energy is really important for us as filmmakers oh, it's huge it can be very lonely yes it can <laughs> <laughs> i'm excited to 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 see this film come to fruition and uh, even more excited after talking with, with, with you guys and seeing the footage. Um, I'm certainly going to be contributing to the cause. I would love to reach out to my listeners um, who might be interested in helping out as well, and I'm sure there are a number of them who would like to. I'll include a link on the show notes. Please go to documentarylife.com, thedocumentarylife.com. Go to the website um, and look in the show notes, and there will be a direct link to the Kickstarter page, as well as, of course, to more information about The Reluctant Radical. Um, and this will be for both of you, Dea and Lindsay. How are the ways that some of my listeners can help you get the word out, and how can they help you help you in terms of um, contributing to the Kickstarter campaign? Uh, well, the easiest way is to go to bit.ly backslash reluctant radical, B-I-T dot L-Y slash reluctant radical and that will connect you right to the crowdfunding page um beyond that um you know all the regular avenues facebook twitter instagram share it with your friends (laughs) share it with your family share it far and wide um and the thing that works best with crowdfunding isn't necessarily the amount you give but that you give or that you contribute so even if it's a buck you know a handful of people will see that and they will want to get involved. We appreciate everyone's support, whether it's financial or, you know, if you can't make a donation yourself, hopefully you can still share the information with your friends and family who might be in a position to do so. And and, and I will say that um, by sharing, uh, I would like to encourage my listeners. Of course, it's easy, especially uh, on Twitter to just click, you know, retweet or to, um, just share on your Facebook page, but it is also also always helpful if if you can when you share whether it's via Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you share um, or do a retweet, it's always helpful if you put a little bit of a personal note yourself. Um, because I know for me, often if I just see a retweet or if I see a share, it's easier for, for me to gloss over it as opposed to if you write your own personal note, attach it to to the share. I find it super helpful. Definitely. Dea and Lindsay, this has been a, a, a conversation a long time coming, and I'm I'm really honored to have the both of you uh, have been on the show. I'm excited for this to air. There's a lot for uh, all of my, all of our listeners to be to be all of my listeners to be. Um, uh, there's a lot of education here, and a lot of thought has gone into this conversation, and I'm excited to share this with everybody because there's a lot to be learned here. Well, I appreciate you having us on. Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to seeing The Reluctant Radical. (laughs) 
Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.